Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our main speaker tonight, Irving. Thank you, Roy. Hi, everybody. My name is Irving, and I am a compulsive overeater. Hi, Irving. And I've brought a picture, <laughs> which I'll put right up to the microphone for the tape. <laughs> Uh, this was taken for my driver's license in 1987, uh, and that was two months before I came into program, and I weighed about 75 pounds more than I do now, sort of qualify. I, I weighed about 230 then, I weighed about 155 now, and uh, um, I was a, I like to say I was a garden variety compulsive overeater, but I was more of a bakery and ice cream store <laughs> variety compulsive overeater. I remember in the, in the 60s, I was, when I first came to Los Angeles, I, I, they used to have these little separate ice cream parlors. It was before the days of Haagen-Dazs. And I would go to one ice cream store because I liked their chocolates. And then I'd drive, you know, across town and go to uh, another one because I liked their strawberry flavor. And uh, I thought I was a fine connoisseur of ice creams. I was just a compulsive overeater of the ice cream store variety. And... Um, uh, I, I was thinking uh, before I got here. Uh, I, I guess maybe later I'll talk about. Well, I'll tell. I was a an atheist and agnostic from the time I was fairly young, in my teens. I once went to a meeting of the a group called the Friendship Liberal League of the Tom Paine Society, and. Um, uh, they were pretty rabid atheists, and um, but but here's the thing: I identify, you know, you know, like you hear these phrases, like someone is a cultural Jew, which means they feel sufficiently guilty and they have heartburn once a week, and they probably re read a novel by Isaac Bashevis Singer, or they're cultural Methodist, and you eat white bread with mayonnaise and stuff like that. Well, I am a cultural atheist, I want to tell you that, and atheists are my people. And uh, I didn't have a friend growing up who believed in God. Uh, in high school, my friends were Jewish atheists, and in college, most of them were Catholic, ex-Catholic atheists. And uh, I love atheists. If there are any atheists or agnostics here, you're my people. Now, I have a relationship with a higher power. When I got to this program in 1987, uh, I was willing to do anything. I was so defeated by food. Um, I took half of the first step before I got here. You know, I, I uh, knew I was powerless over food, and um, I knew my life was unmanageable. I mean, that was for sure, because I was really crazed. And I went home after my first meeting, and I was keeping a journal, and I wrote down my eating history. And I'd already, I'd done the first step then by the end of my first meeting. And... If I thought I had to believe in a power greater than myself, then I was willing to act as if I believed in a power greater than myself. And I truly believe that that uh, the obsession was removed by some force outside myself. However you want to look at it, I got out of my own way sufficiently so that some force could relieve me of, of compulsive overeating. But... Um, 
and and I meditate and um, and I hit my knees in the morning and stuff. I, I do that and and pray. I don't mind praying. I'm not a slave. I believed to what I believed in yesterday, and I hope not a slave to what I believed in five minutes ago. I allow my beliefs to change. However, as they say in certain circles, uh, since the last political campaign, I have uh, had the hardest time with hearing the word God spoken publicly. And it did not matter what the religion of the candidate was nor what his political party was. I have just had uh, a hell of a time with that. Um, uh, and for for a couple of years I've been saying, I don't think that, that God has a relationship with political bodies. I think God and individuals have relations can have relationships. So, but the more uh, difficulty I've had hearing the word God, the more I've done things like like hit my knees. So I'm willing to uh, uh, to not let a, a belief system get in the way of of uh, of a relationship with a higher power. That I my I try to uh, uh, to feel my way. And to, to allow myself to feel a relationship with a higher power and uh, get out of my head and get out of my own way. Um, something that I've really learned a lot about in program. Um, I was a fat kid, uh, and I was not who I thought I ought to be. Uh, my, my parents, I was an only child. My parents had been married seven years years before I was born. The story was my mother went to uh, uh, whatever you go to, a gynecologist or OBGYN to find out why she couldn't become pregnant, and he told her she was. And um, and I was certainly a wanted child. And I think there, the, the, the legend, the, the myth in my family, the belief, which I guess a lot of people believe, is we'll have a kid to save this marriage. And so I had a job as a child. Of saving this this marriage, and and my my father used to tell me that I should feel grateful because I had much better than he did. He had to quit school when he was ten or eleven years old and sell newspapers, walk across the Brooklyn Bridge selling newspapers. He did. His family was quite poor, and and um, we weren't well off, but we were better off than that, you know. But I didn't feel grateful. I, I have never asked a sponsee to prepare a gratitude list um, because I resented so much as a kid being told that I should be grateful that I didn't have to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge selling newspapers, which would have been very difficult because we lived in Philadelphia. And, um, <laughs> but I thought I had a harder job than selling newspapers. I thought I had to make my parents happy. Now, some of that they may have laid on me, and some of it I may have just picked up for myself. And there are probably other kids who had the same feeling in their family who didn't become compulsive overeaters, but the food worked for me. And uh, as a kid, my family would get together on Friday night, and I was the only kid. Uh, my mother had... Uh, uh, five sisters, 
four sisters, I guess. Two two had not married. One was married with no children, and one had married, and her son was like significantly older than I was, so he wasn't around these dinners. I was the only kid, and the brothers didn't come on on fr- on Friday nights for dinner, and I, I was the only kid there. And we used to play, and they'd make cakes. They'd make two cakes: chocolate cake, white cake, and they'd say, "Which would you like?" And I would say. Geez, I don't know. Let me have a piece of each. And uh, they'd say, fine. And at first they would give me a, a like a three-quarter size piece of each, but then quickly that was changed. And they'd just give me a regular piece of each. And they say, well, which one? I, you know, this was to decide which one I wanted, mind you. <laughs> so then I would say, I'd get cute. I'd say, geez, I couldn't decide. Let me have another piece of each. And... Um, and they would give me another piece of each, and then I would usually decide in favor of the chocolate cake. And I was I was a fat kid. You know, they rationalized it as baby fat and all that. And, you know, they called it baby fat till I was well into my 30s. And from an emotional point of view, that was probably true. I was an emotional baby. It was emotional baby fat. So... Uh, but I would I would then have the chocolate cake and I would eat five pieces of of cake and that was cool and that I liked that that helped me a lot and I do not think these people were bad for giving me five pieces of cake mind you I don't think I could have gotten away with seven pieces of cake I think they might say oh a little fat uh, seven pieces of cake that isn't cool but five was the number we'd arrived at somehow and. Um, I had a lot of food anxieties as a kid. I went away to camp, and um, I was—I used to have orange juice every morning. My mother told me it was good for me, and I assumed that the absence of orange juice was bad for me. No one told me that, and they didn't have orange juice at camp, and I w- would worry about that. And I used to dunk my meat in applesauce. And and they didn't have applesauce with all the meat meals. And I used to worry when I went away. I went away for eight weeks. How am I going to survive without my orange juice, without my applesauce? I had a lot of, I think that I'm basically high anxiety and the anxiety focused on food. For a period, I mean, I was never conscious of that before programming. For a couple of years, I thought I just had food anxieties. But I think it's a lot of anxiety and it focuses on food. And that's why I do all the prayer and meditation and stuff that I do to try to make me halfway normal, you know. And um, um, I, I hated being a fat kid and I hated even more than that you know, being who I was. There's a... There was a pundit who used to say of Hollywood, beneath the fake tinsel and glitter of Hollywood lies the real tinsel and glitter. And for me, beneath the, what I've come to see, beneath the, the false self-hatred of being a compulsive overeater lay the real self-hatred of being Irving Goldworm. Now, that wasn't my name when I was a kid either. I, I, it's great to have a long time. I can tell a story. When I was all along, I thought my name was Sherman. My name was Irving Sherman, and um, and uh, my mother one day confided in me. She said, "Your name isn't really Sherman; it's Goldworm. Don't tell anyone." And uh, uh, when I I came across the country in 1967, and um, to stop using drugs, I went to San Francisco. Honest to God, <laughs> good ability of of self deception, and and I m- moved into a drug rehab joint. And I went in for my first interview, and they said I had to pay my tickets and uh, 
settle my debts, so I had to sell a car on which I owed money, and then I, I moved in, and I went back for the second interview, and I said, I got to tell you something. I lied about my uh, something in my interview. They said, what, your name? I said, well, how did you know? And I decided to change my name to Goldworm. Be, somehow I thought I was making a clean start of it or it was honest or something because my name on my birth certificate was Goldworm, known as Sherman. And my family gave me, I love this, my family named me Irving so that I wouldn't have a Jewish name like like Isaac, which I was named after an Isaac. But But that's a generational thing, I suppose, you know. But, but they did it. Though. They weren't too in touch with with things either. <laughs> uh, I don't really know what to say about my childhood, except I was bored all the time. That seemed to be a central fact, uh, and I and I felt real shame. Like I got this sense that one should have a sense of, of adventure, experimentation, and joy in life, and somehow I didn't have that. And uh, I tried to replace it with uh, critical analysis and and scoffing at popular things and, and um, the the defiance that, that the big book talks about alcoholics having, I, I tried to somehow capitalize on that sense of defiance and make that one of my primary virtues. Uh, it was kind of twisted. And um, I, I moved out to California. I went in this drug rehab joint, and I lived there for 10 years. I, I've been married once. Uh, well, I, I met my first wife through friends, and she broke... Uh, she broke up with me. So in, in the name of, of drama and all that stuff, you know, I attempted suicide. And I took 59 sleeping capsules. There was a broken one. I didn't want to take that. And I called some friends, and they came over and, and took me to the hospital. They started throwing my records around. So I'm going to break all your records if you don't go to the hospital. So they took me to the hospital. And... Uh, I had my stomach pumped, and I decided I would make a significant change in my life. I stopped putting uh, cream and sugar in coffee, and that's all I could think of. Some kind of change related to food, I guess. And um, I remember the psychiatrist said to my friend, he must really be kind of screwed up to want to kill himself. And my friend said, well, Albert Camus says it's the only meaningful philosophical question. And the shrink, shrink looked at him like, oh, I, he's his friend, of course, that's what he'd say. But I, I did. And uh, and I punished my, my, my girlfriend for breaking up with me by marrying her. And uh, and one of, one of the joys of program has been just so making amends to her. I hadn't seen her for 25 years. She uh, lives on the East Coast. I went back and visited with her. Uh, we had dinner. I made amends, and then she turned and, and made amends to me. And uh, for her amends were basically like for expectations that she had that I didn't even know she had, you know. Um, uh, when I met her, I was started graduate school in English literature and I wanted to be a college English teacher and um, she thought that would just be great. She'd be like a faculty wife and and screw around with, with her art uh, at which she was was talented and um, and then I decided I you know I 
borrowed one of her cameras and um, in fact, I still have it. It's in this bag. And I became a photographer, uh, which in the 60s meant, you know, you got an ounce of brass and a camera and some film, and you went out and took pictures. And, and so I made, I got some jobs occasionally, but, but it meant that I wasn't going to support her. And so, and she had expected that, and that was what she made amends to me for, for having that expectation. So uh, somehow both of us had learned um, new ways of looking at life, uh, over, you know, through, through the years. And it was, uh, uh, it, it was really great to be able to, to have that kind of relationship with someone. The other thing we did was uh, somehow she took the weight for any sex dysfunction in our relationship like it was all blamed on her she was supposed to be frigid but I approached her with about as much sensitivity as a piece of earth moving equipment you know <laughs> oh, I certainly don't blame her I think that was probably just an honest response to my real you know uh, dinosaur brain stumbling or whatever I was doing so um, uh, it was and I learned that in program. You know, I, I never, I was so out of touch with my feelings when I got to, to program. Uh, my father died when I was 11, and I was in therapy, and my shrink said, how do you feel about that? I said, well, uh, he had a stroke five years before, so we knew he was going to die. It was no big deal. Okay, the real truth of the situation was that he died when he had this, in one way, when he had the stroke, and then he died again when he actually died. There were really, it was harder. There were really two things to, to grieve, and, um, and I grieved neither of them. I remember uh, when I, I, I had heard this remark, you know, I used to hear a lot of philosophical statements at different times, and one of them that I heard was there was a French philosopher who said, between pain and nothingness, I choose pain. And I thought that was admirable, and I'm really a coward, boy. Between pain and nothingness, I chose nothingness. That's what I use food for. That's what I use booze for. That's what I, you know, put needles in my arms for. I mean, I just wanted oblivion. And oblivion got too painful for me after a while, and... Uh, and, and so starting to feel feelings, starting to feel what was going on with me became the better alternative at age 47 when I came into program. So, uh, so my father died and I never grieved his death. Um, I, uh, and I wound up a, a, a fat dope fiend. I loved I loved speed because I've heard people say, you know, all speed made him do was eat faster. But my sense is he didn't use enough, you know. And, uh, and I, it was just so great to be skinny for the first time in my life. It was wonderful. The most powerful feeling I'd ever had was to refuse food, particularly from family members. I just loved that, you know. And I, I, it was great. Uh, because I'd all I'd never been able to refuse food. I was always eating. Uh, my idea of a, you know time to have dinner was before five o'clock, preferably. You know I'd eat after school and then I'd have dinner at five o'clock and then I'd eat 
you know, for the rest of the night. And um, and when I went away to camp, I could lose 40 pounds in eight weeks because the foods that I liked weren't around because I was more physically active and I wasn't the some of the things that I ate over weren't weren't there either. But you know, I was only there for eight weeks. If I'd been there for longer, I would have brought all those things that I used to eat over. I would have replicated the the unresolved struggles in my family. I would have replicated with you know, people at camp and other situations. I think that's generally what what we do when we're, you know, when we have unresolved stuff. And I was so full of rage when I got the program. I was just yelling all the time, and I, I would go zero to 60 in my emotions like that. I didn't know what was going on with me. I lived in a drug place for 10 years, and, and I was we all had to get down to our chart lean normal weights, which I did, and I immediately started putting on weight when I left. And I was getting married in uh, 1985, and uh, I wanted to lose weight. All through my life, I could do my yo-yo number when I found myself going into a new situation, go from one school to another, could lose weight, so they wouldn't know I was really a fat kid. You know, but I thought I was really a fat kid, just temporarily in a thin body, and it was always temporary, and the periods became shorter and shorter, you know, that I was thin, and then the weight would come back on, and always more, you know, basic stuff. So, um, I... Uh, I lost weight in 85. My diet of choice by then was the Stillman diet, and... Um, and which I only had to stick on for like 45 days or so, and I could lose about 30 pounds, and that was about as much as I could do. And I knocked off 30 pounds, and I got married. And the next year at that time, I weighed a few pounds more than I had before I lost the 30 pounds. And I went on another diet in 1986, and I lost the same weight again. And by 87, I was heavier than I'd ever been, and I didn't have another diet in me. That was my version of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I'd never gone anywhere, but I knew I couldn't do this on my own, and I was in therapy, and I said, Doc, what I feel worst about is my weight. And he said, why don't you go to Weight Watchers or Overeaters Anonymous? And I had this mistaken notion that people from Weight Watchers still carried scales with them. I didn't know that they had packaged food, and I didn't want to carry a scale around. That seemed really unhip. So I thought I'd try OA, and I knew nothing about it. But there was a meeting in um, in Studio City Saturday afternoon. I called the, the office in the Valley, and they sent me a meeting directory. We must have been flush at that time because they didn't ask me to send a self-addressed stamped envelope. I was such a procrastinator that my self-image thinks, geez, if I had to do that, I'd still be out there eating. And one of the wonderful things about recovery for me is this feeling that I take care of business, you know, that if I make a commitment, I stick to it. If I say I'm going to do something, I do it pretty much. I, I do pretty well with that, and it feels great. And I always had lofty goals, and achievable goals seemed just fine. I, I went to my first meeting, and um, I'll tell you what was going on. I was in Europe for uh, with my then wife for a month. Uh, we were in Spain. Her parents had a house right on the coast. 
And I came back and I had some kind of midlife crisis, breakdown, whatever it was. I couldn't live the way I'd been living before, trying to control everything. And I had this argument with her, and I left home. I jumped out a window. Now, it was a first-floor window, but uh, I've learned since then. You usually use doors to go in and out of a house. And and I ran away, and I holed up in a in a motel. And what did I do? It was time to make a change in my life. I fasted for two days because I was going to lose weight. And then I went back to eating. And, and she she came and found me at work on the next Monday, and and took me back and said, though I we had I had to do something, go to a shrink. So I started in therapy and. Um, and when I at my first meeting, I thought I heard someone say you couldn't eat sugar in a way. And I said, well, all these religions have dietary laws, you know, of one kind or another. And and if this group, which calls themselves a spiritual program, that's like a religion, if they have this dietary law, great. So I haven't eaten sugar for uh, for 14 years. I don't know whether I could. I think I'm really a moderate mealer. I might be able to, but I don't need to find out. And it's some sort of little covenant with my higher power that I have that's not eating sugar. And I like that notion, you know, that I have to do something. And little. The, I was uh, at a meeting the other day. We were reading Step 7 in the uh, OA 12 and 12. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of talk of self-esteem. And uh, and I I don't like those those words like self esteem self help you know I don't quite believe in those concepts most of them are in actions they're results of stuff if I esteem others and if I do esteemable things then I'll have some self esteem the self things that I know are self loathing self hatred self sabotage self destructive behavior those are my selves but the one that I can come up with that that is a, an action is self sacrifice and and I view this not eating sugar as making this you know, a little bit of sacrifice um, so I was I was off you know I, I I my life was unmanageable if I'm jumping out windows and running away from home my life is unmanageable and and I took I went home after the first meeting and I wrote down my eating history and I knew I was a compulsive overeater and it never occurred to me not to go back to a meeting the following Saturday and um, and I the the guy who was secretary of that meeting. I asked after two months. I really don't like rejection, so I was afraid to ask him to sponsor me, and I finally did. And he's still my sponsor. Um, November, you know, I guess I came in at, right after Thanksgiving in November of '87, and I think I asked him to sponsor me in January of '88. So this coming January will be 14 years that he's been my sponsor. And, uh, and he's been a great sponsor. Um, you know, one of the things about sponsorship, you don't usually hear somebody say it. If you get an abusive sponsor, remember, most of the time you chose them. I mean, you know, we, we sort of get who we, we pick who we want for our sponsor. They're not, you know, there's no matching service, you know. And, uh, and I was, I guess it was the, the healthiest thing about me that I was able to pick someone who was, a, a, he never played God. He, he never uh, uh, was, was cruel to me. He was, he was really 
good. And uh, and I think he knew the truth of program, which I just got the reminded of the other night. I know it's not conference approved, but I watched the movie. Uh, uh, my name is Bill W. And uh, uh, I cried. And the scene that I cried at was, uh, I should say that I cried a lot when I was new in program. It was really healing and good for me. I think I had to grieve the death of my father, which I hadn't grieved. And I think I had to grieve the loss of my friend food, which I, you know, I, I lost food, all, you know, that on-demand food. And I was watching the movie, and I've cried a lot in the last couple of months. I think it's the events in the world have have uh, frightened me, not not whatever shaken me or saddened me or whatever but I've cried a lot and I and and it was great to cry at the movie and the scene that got me was where Bill and Dr. Bob meet and um, Dr. Bob said look the best doctors and shrinks have given me the best that they've got and I'm still drunk the best uh, clergymen have given me their best stuff and I'm still drunk so how is what you have for me going to help me but Wilson said it ain't for you man it's for me and uh, how easy it is to forget that in programs sometimes and think that you know something that you know, somebody has to hear my wisdom. Nobody has to hear my wisdom. You know, you guys are here keeping me abstinent tonight. That's what you're doing. Don't don't mistake it. You may be getting something out of it for yourselves, but you're here keeping me abstinent. People who call me up and, and you know, I food sponsor, tell me their food three times a day, they're keeping me abstinent. Um, uh, that's what this program is, you know, seems to be about, and it's so easy to forget it. And I, I hooked up with a sponsor who seemed to know that, and uh, uh, what a blessing that that's been for me. Um, uh, that's where I'm at. I mean, that's that's kind of what what happened, and. Um, I have lots of tales, you know, of program to tell, but, but nothing has gotten through to me so much as as that scene where where Bill Wilson admits it's for him. And then, of course, he goes on and says, that's why he failed with all those people in New York before he got to Akron, because he was preaching to them. And, you know, and earlier he said to Lois, this, this thing is this thing is no good. And because, look, I haven't sobered up anybody. And she said, hey, schmuck. <laughs> well, it didn't speak that way, but if she did, hey, schmuck, you're sober, you know. And I'm abstinent. And um, so if I have, I've had these funny sponsorship stories. I, when, when I was new, atheist that I was, my sponsor asked me to write about the first on the first three steps and then he had me come over to his house and we got down on our knees and put our arms on each other's shoulders and he said you know shout after me you know God I offer myself to you I God I offer myself to you I was screaming and you know I was uh, we did the third step prayer together with me yelling it and um, and I do that with people I take through the steps and the last two have been so funny I live in this small house, and um, 
we got a dog not that long ago, and I the dog was wandering around in the sky, and I got down on our knees and living room floor, arms on each other's shoulders, and the dog came and joined us, you know. <laughs> she got right over, put her paws up on our shoulder, and we said that she didn't bark the third step prayer, but but she. You know, but but it was it was really comical and it was really funny, you know. And uh, I didn't know what to make of the third step prayer the first time I yelled it out. You know, the program is about contrary action, doing stuff, not knowing what the results are, are going to be, and actually believing it is the results aren't my business. I I have to take the action. Um. Um. The other time, the last time I took someone on a third step, the guy, I didn't know when we could find a time to do it at my house. And I said, what time do you go to work? I said, do you have an office there, private office? He said, yeah. So uh, he said, I get to work 5.30. I get there before anybody else. I said, great, I'll meet you there about quarter after five. And I mean, I'll go to any lengths. What the hell? And uh, so I met him, and he worked at the police garage on Venice. So I walked through this police station and we were surrounded by, as they call them, black and whites. You know, I knew a reserve cop one, so I know that they don't call them police cars, they call them black and whites. And we were surrounded by black and whites and got down on our knees in this little office and did the third step prayer at this police station garage. What the hell? <laughs> the program has led me to some funny places. Um, and, you know, I'm not bored anymore. I, I retired from my business a couple of years ago, and uh, I feared boredom, the same boredom that I knew as a kid. And uh, I haven't had a bored day since, uh, since I've retired. First, I thought that, you know, these other guys, they don't know how to do retirement. I'm going to do retirement better than anyone else. I got into that. That, you know, that grandiosity, I'm going to do it right, they do it wrong, you know. Um, and for me, and I think what that really is, is that my sense of to be right with the world, I have to be better than others. I mean, that's right out of Bill Wilson. I, I read, uh, you know, Bill was still really grandiose when he started AA, but not like he was when he got out of the service after the First World War and was going to set the world on fire. You know, he had his ass kicked by booze a couple of times. and uh, but, but for him, there was a process of, of becoming more humble and open. And I think that's true for all of us. You know, what's that? Pro you used to hear a lot of great program lines. One of them was really applied in a way. It was, I'm the piece of shit around which the world re revolves, you know. <laughs> and, and I have to, to get out of, of that kind of self-centeredness. And, um, and one form that that takes is having to be, you know, I have to do it right. All these other people do it wrong. I don't need to make any judgment on anybody's retirement. And uh, someone could make judgment on mine. I, I have stuff that I like to do, and I work hard. I, at first, when I retired, I was getting up at 5.15 every morning. By 9 o'clock, I'd done more than I did it a day at work. You know, I, I meditated and wrote and went out and, and, and took pictures, which is something I do, and just really had a, a very, very busy day. And I've relaxed some. 
I, I don't know that I'm less productive, but, uh, but I'm, I'm easing up some. Um, the other thing that, that Bill talks about in, in, um, that I found, and as Bill sees it, uh, is, I forget which page, but he says, you know, you start the program wherever you can start. Do the steps you can do. The ones you can't do, you'll get to them later. Don't worry about it. Just do the stuff you can do. And I so rarely hear that. You always hear, you know, you always hear people beating on some poor atheist. You know, you've got to do the third step. You've got to do the third step. My theory is, and I mean, you know, to be Sigmund Freud to see this, if you look at the way most people live, we don't live with a lot of faith, you know. Um, and so there's always someone who's, an, you know, who, who's a believer for 15 minutes in the morning and an atheist for the rest of the day who clings to his 15 minutes like he gives him some special place on earth over the guy who doesn't have that 15 minutes. So that's why they're always beating up on some atheist, you know. Um, and, I, and I am, a, uh, and, and I don't think belief matters a whole lot. What does matter is the relationship with a higher power. And uh, I get up in the morning and, and, and I meditate. And I lie in bed and I say a couple of, of religious prayers. Um, and uh, then I, uh, I go into shower and I, uh, and I say this, the first three steps. And I don't, my experience is I don't know how you ever get past the first three three steps. You'll do them every day. It doesn't didn't stop me from doing the fourth and so forth. But it, you know, but I have to do them every day. And then when I go in the bathroom to shower, I, um, I uh, put my, uh, get down on the bath mat and I uh, face east. I decided that I'll do that like a Muslim because I identify with people who are under it you know, attack and victims of prejudice. And I suppose that's part of, of, of as much being a cultural Jew as, as uh, you know, having heartburn. And so I, I identify with, with, with these, you know, a couple hundred people in this country who've been attacked, you know, because they have brown eyes or whatever they were attacked for. And so I face East. And, uh, and I get on my knees and I say the third step prayer and then I shower and, and, um, get dressed and sit down and, and meditate for about 15 minutes every day. And every day but Saturday I write. And I write for, I, I do it on the computer and I try to do a word count. I don't like to do less than 400 words. It takes me about 20, 25 minutes. I don't have any form like, dear. it's not in the form of the Dear God letter. Um, and I don't require myself to read my writing to anybody else or to myself. I mean, it's painful enough sometimes to write it. I don't want to have to read it, too. And, but I do it. I just do it. And then I take the dog out for a walk, and, um, and I can always feel bad. I wish I treated my kids as well as I treat my dog. And uh, I'm really nice to my dog, you know, and I'm really glad. And, and you know, uh, I get so much from it, but I, I, don't, I find I don't get angry. Whatever I've done to get rid of anger, the dog does something. She comes. The other day, I, I, 
mopped the kitchen floor and she came in the doggy door just when the floor was at its wettest. And I said, I knew you were going to do that. And that was all, like some guy in a sitcom who's some happy guy, you know. I was never happy. My, I thought that I, I used to complain about shallowness in people. My definition of shallowness was you were happy, you know. And, of course, I was the shallowest of all because I was so out of touch with my feelings. You don't, that is probably the definition of shallowness, that you're not aware of what you're feeling, what you believe, what means something to you in the world. I just, you know, it's that standard deal where, you know, if you point one finger at someone else, you're pointing back at yourself. I've become aware of that really bad when, you know, over the last month thinking about, when I would come home from work and yell at my kids and act like a jerk, it was like there was some terrorist in the house. You know, oh, shit, there he goes again. You know, I don't know what to expect. You know, what's going to happen today? That real sense of unpredictability. And, uh, and I'm not like that very much anymore, really rarely. Um, I know if I were drinking, I'd be there like that. And I suspect if I was overeating, I would be so full of the self-hatred again and feel so weak that I'd be right there again. And, uh, I mean, while you're in yourism, I don't know how any years of abstinence uh, would would show itself, reveal itself in my life. But I have seen people who've lost their abstinence and come back, and whatever they'd gotten the first time, second time, however many times around, it's right back there again. But you can't be practicing the, the, the disease, it seems, and, and get that. Um, I mean, that's my take on it. I used to do service and program above the meeting level. I'm not really good at that. The only service I ever did above the meeting level that I liked was the Men's Stag Retreat Committee because we actually did something. We put on this event. The rest of it, I, I freaked at world service. I just, uh, you know, I thought it was, I wasn't uh, comfortable there and I, I felt mistrustful of certain powers that be and all that. So I don't do that anymore. And I'm grateful for the people who do it, you know. Um, but I can't. Maybe I'll. Maybe when I grow up I'll be able to, but I haven't reached that level now. And I try to give service in, in other ways. Uh, I usually have a, a meeting commitment. And well, here's how I do stuff. I go to this Tuesday morning big book study in the valley. I live in the valley. Nice meeting. Uh, and I was secretary uh, until and when my term ended. Uh, and I would get there. Thank you. I would get there early and make sure that, that the room was open so that we'd get the chairs set up. And I was usually the first one there, and someone would usually come in and we'd set up the chairs. Then I decided, well, when I'm not secretary anymore, I'll come early and set up the chairs. And now I said, oh, I don't have to set up the chairs alone. I'll get there five or ten minutes early so that I can help set up chairs. But if someone's gotten here real early and does it, that's fine, too. I've learned, I guess... It's that wear life like a loose garment thing, you know. I don't have to be the guy who sets up the chairs for the meeting. I can just be one of a group of people who takes a little bit of responsibility for the meeting, and part of that responsibility is setting up chairs. It's, 
It's simpler and easier than I usually allow it to be. And if I get out of my own way, I, I do much, much better. And I have a tendency to be in my own way. And it's been the steps of, of Overeaters Anonymous that has helped me get out of my own way. I've only talked about the first, uh, well, the first three and the 11th step. I have one practical uh, bit of experience which I would like to pass on. If you're going to be doing an eighth and ninth step, my experience was I found out the phone number of some people I'd lost contact with whom I needed to make amends to. Because I didn't know when I would be so moved to make amends, and I figured I was scared of it. It wouldn't last forever. So when I was moved to make amends, I had their phone numbers and called them up. And, uh, and I believe that if I do this program diligently and sincerely, I will, uh, uh, I will do it thoroughly. Uh, there were amends I didn't make. I didn't realize that I had financial amends to make the first time I made amends, but I realized somewhat later, and I I made those amends, you know. Um, and they used to say of army of army uh, dentists, you know, they they uh, they drill where people don't have teeth, and I, you know, found that I have defects where I didn't know I had character, and. Uh, I, I wouldn't have known what I was doing wrong. I was so unsupportive of my kid's mother when she had the kid. She was she was tough to support, but I was really unsupportive of her, and I've made amends for to her for that. Um, and I didn't even know anything about being a supportive and loving husband at that time in my life. I was in my early 30s and kind of desperate. And, uh, I guess I was. Uh, slow developing in a lot of areas, and this program has, has really helped me. I don't believe. I became an overeater when I was like six. I don't think my growth stopped when I was six. I think between six and 47, I was probably, when I reached 47, I was probably nine. So don't accuse me of having stopped my growth. But I've really slowed it down and retarded it in a lot of ways. I pray for people now and try to get out of resentments and try to spiritualize my food, leave a bite for God, or pray before I eat or do something like that. You know, the program is about the food, and it's not about the food. It's, you know, um, that's about what I got to say. God, if, if it was painful to listen to me this long, please have compassion. I have to listen to myself every day. <laughs> Thank you very much. Sure.